Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back here. And how many have gone through some difficult times in your life? Amen. Many of you prayed for me, and I just want to give this in a big summary and thank you for all your prayers. And that uh, the beginning of 2015, um, as I was in the middle of committing to four major prayer gatherings uh, asked by four different governors of four different states, uh, that was Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Florida for 2015, and to come and help. Uh, moderate and facilitate a Joel 2, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 prayer gatherings in their states and to get churches across racial, denominational, and generational lines. And uh, because of the one we had done at Reliance Stadium uh, in 2011 at that time under Governor Perry, and the criteria was for us to do it was no preachers pontificating and no politicians giving speeches. But it was unique in that governors were actually calling the meetings but not having any influence on what happened during the day. But they had to come. They could not preach. They could not give speeches. They could only pray or read Scripture. And the other criteria was that we would not even mention people's names. And so to stay true to that, the only name that was ever exalted on those days is the name of Jesus. So even if the governor came, I would even say the governor of this state. I wouldn't even say their name because I didn't want to take anything away from the need at the point in our nation of the desperation of needing an intervention from God Himself. And because we're under a lot of pressure, aren't we? Yes. And pressure does magnify. But it's in the middle of all that, um, uh, after the one we did with Governor Jindal in 2015 in January at LSU, uh, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, uh, that March I was working out. I like to work out at the gym, as, as some know, and, and I just turned uh, uh, 41 for the 20th time just a couple of days ago. But I still like to work out and still like to get guys half my age and see if they can keep up with me on push-ups and things like that. It's, you know, anyway, it helps me keep me young, yes. So, um, but in March of that year of 2015, I'm at the gym. I noticed a lump in my throat. So I just forgot about it. I had to go to a board meeting for one of our ministries that, were, that are affiliated with us up in Boston. And uh, during that time, a second lump came up. And so my wife says, you need to email some of your doctor friends, which I did. They all said, you need to go get a biopsy. So I came back to Houston. And by the end of the first week of April, we found out it had already become stage four lymphoma uh, cancer, and it spread. And so I took a couple hours in the parking lot of an HEB. And, uh, and as I sat there, I talked to God, went home, sat down with my mother-in-law, who's from Monterey, Mexico, and lives with us, and my wife and my daughter, sat them down. They're all crying. And so we sat down, and I just said, first of all, let us be very, very aware of this fact. God did not do this to me. Right. And secondly, if God did not do this to me, it does not belong to me. And if it does not belong to me, we will not let this become about me. Let's turn this into intercession for the church of America because there's a battle for the soul of a nation and the only hope for the soul of a nation is for the heart of the nation, which is the church, to be healthy. And I said, we're going to turn this around and, and almost like a prophetic drama, because in the Old Testament, early church, many of the apostolic fathers, uh, prophets in the Old Testament, they, their very experience became the message. And so it became a message in a larger context than just what they were going through. So I said, let this experience be turned in intercession as a prophetic drama to see healing in the church and the healing of a nation. And, that, and then we are not going to then let this become about me at all. And we, weren't, we don't want the attention on us. Let's put the attention on the Lord. And so we went ahead and committed as long as we could 
to go and fulfill every obligation throughout 2015, including finishing out the three more uh, calls by governors for us to come and help facilitate Joel 2, 2 Chronicles 714 gatherings. So the only thing that changed, and most people who didn't know me wouldn't even know because they thought maybe I'd just shave my head, look like a cool ninja dude. And uh, now the ones that knew me, they, could, they knew I had the pick line and so on, but even going through all the chemo and all the, the health stuff and everything else, we never stopped traveling and we never stopped ministering. And by the grace of God, everybody's story is different, but I knew and I told my wife, if I let the devil beat me on this, I might as well die anyway. Because I know that only God knows my appointed time. So every day, every day I'm going to live for the Lord and I'm going to take every step in faith to keep on ministering the love of Jesus to people that desperately need Him. And so people would say, how are you feeling, brother? And I didn't want the attention on me. I said, every day is a good day because I serve a great God. Now, some days are better good days than others, but every day is a good day because I serve a great God. Well, we went through the whole process, we traveled, we ministered and did these prayer gatherings, and, uh, and so after the, the one we did, and we did one in, uh, the next one was South Carolina, then North Carolina, and, uh, and then uh, three days after the one in North Carolina, I took my last chemo, and then by November 10th of 2015, um, the doctors called me in, and they had all this extra medical professionals there saying, we can't explain this. But look at this, when you first came in, this is your PET scan, you're eating up, your whole body is lit up with cancer. But now, here is the most recent PET scan, and it shows no evidence of disease. So, amen. Now, that was November 10th of 2015, and uh, and right after that, in December, I had gone, I was asked to speak at a gathering in Dallas for a called United Cry a Banquet, and I found out there had been a young man in his early 20s who had been fasting and praying for 40 days when he heard that I had cancer. And so I asked him, I said, Derek, why would you do that? And he said, Doug, I lost my dad a few years ago when I was 18 years old to cancer. And I realized, though we don't know each other well, I have imbibed into my life men of God like you and considered you in a a spiritual context a spiritual father to my generation. And I was determined I was going to fight for the fathers of my generation. Yeah, right. And so I said, well, I want you to know, because the day he finished, and the next day I came up there to speak, and, and that's when I was able to tell him, by the way, uh, the day that you finished fasting, the next day on November 10th is when they gave me a clean bill of health and no evidence of disease. Yeah. So I know that there is a generation looking for spiritual fathers and mothers. We don't need to tell them what to do. They're filled with vision and passion. But we do need to come alongside and empower them to become what they need to be. Recently, I was with, um, well, on the way here, I'm going to stop on that for a moment. On the way here, I was listening, and I hate listening to myself, but I, they had asked me to take my book, Leadership Awakening, and personally, not get a professional voice, but for me to go to the studio for like 30-something hours and hash over, over and over, reading my own book on an Audible and iTunes. I'm thinking, man, I hate listening to my own voice. And so I was listening to my voice because it's out now on iTunes and, and Audible. So I was listening to it on the way here. I'm thinking, oh, I've got to go do that again. But anyway, um, in chapter 3, I was coming across a story by the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, Paul Cole's father. And, uh, and Paul's taken on a, an amazing anointing 
a double portion unique in himself, but carrying the legacy that had been laid out for him in the foundations he's building. As I believe that we all can only build based on the foundations laid and the sacrifices made and the price that has already been paid. If we disregard that foundation, we, can't, we limit our future. But if we glean from those foundations, even though we might be unique in who we are, we build upon another person's foundation so we can flourish in our future. So if we dishonor the former generation, we limit the future of this next generation. So all that being said, I was listening to him thinking, I remember the story and I talk about it in chapter three and I talk about pressure magnifies and I learned that from Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. Now tonight I'm under a lot of pressure and the reason being is that my Houston Astros uh, are down three games or two against the New York Yankees. And so while we're here, I'm not going to be distracted by, I hope they're winning, but I am going to say there's a little bit of pressure thinking, I know they're under pressure because if they lose tonight, that's it. If they win tonight, they have one more chance to take it to the world, to go to the World Series. Pressure magnifies. Dr. Cole says, told us that in the beginning of the baseball season, if it's the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, ninth inning, bases loaded, and you come up to bat, ladies, bear with me for a moment, you come up to bat... (laughs) If you strike out, you're upset. Everybody's upset at you. If you hit a grand slam, you become the hero. That's a lot of pressure. But how much more pressure on the seventh game of the World Series, bases loaded, tied game, and you're at the bottom of the ninth and you're up to bat. If you strike out, no one will remember what happened on the first game of 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 the season, but they will remember forever what you did at that moment. If you hit the grand slam or you get a base hit, uh, and, and an RBI, or if you strike out, pressure magnifies. Yeah. We are under extreme pressure today, but yet in the midst of that, God is doing the most incredible things. I've at, I was talking to a group of pastors the other day. I said, how many of you are believing for revival? And everybody raised their hands. In fact, just on my birthday, I agreed to go speak at a gathering of leaders, young leaders, millennial leaders, and pastors, and youth pastors, and, and ministry leaders, business leaders. And, and so on that night, I said, how many have been praying for God to do something in your generation in revival? Of course, they all raise their hand. I said, it's not about when revival comes. We're in revival right now. It just happens to be that it came away we didn't expect it to come. You would understand that right here in Corpus Christi area and Port Aransas, of course, Rockport. Houston, of all the floods that we received, we understand that. But it was interesting, up to that point, all you heard all day long on the media was how there was racial tension, political divide. The nation was totally uh, disrespecting one another. There There was an unraveling of the foundation of our nation, rioting and arguing, and even the church was split in every level. We had a nation totally divided, and all the narrative was about Racial tension, political polarization, and a nation divided. But for a moment, when Hurricane uh, Harvey came through, for a moment, all they could hear or see was how the church became the church. It was black and white, brown, red, and yellow. 
And the narrative had changed for a moment because now they couldn't just keep on propagating and creating comic fodder about the church or about a nation. They could not deny the news every day when you saw a black person helping a white person or a white person helping a Latino person or an Asian person trying to go through the water and helping. So it was everybody helping everybody because that became the real church in real America. God has a way of bringing us together by circumstance, if not by choice. And we've all been praying for revival. It's just coming in a way we did not expect. So when CNN and Fox News and others started contacting me, trying to get me to say things, I said, stop for a moment. I said, here's the new narrative. Just watch. Everything you see, there's the church everywhere. Everywhere I've gone, people say, the church has been here. Church people have been here. Christians are helping. People are here. Neighbors helping neighbors. All of a sudden, it wasn't about the division. It was about authentic unity. Not, uni- right. not uniformity, as pastor said. Right. Because uniformity is, we're not a bunch of clones of modern-day Christianity. We're not a bunch of right. robots. Right. But unity is in our diversity and the uniqueness of our diversity coming together with something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. So for a time and a season, I want to make sure we are intentional to keep sharing that narrative and not the narrative of the world. Yeah, to do that, we have to get back into our foundations and get back into the Word. So I, and then I was a part of recently, in the middle of all that, uh, a part of what was called Awaken the Dawn up in Washington, D.C. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Jason Hershey had been, had been doing for two years, 24-7 at David's tent up on the mall and and then uh, David Bradshaw had a vision to bring together at least a f- every state being represented, having their own state on the mall, and then regional tents and so on, and territorial tents. And, and so it was beautiful to see 50-something, 50 56, 57 tents on the mall starting last, well, a couple weeks ago on th- Thursday night all the way through Sunday night, 24-7, every tent from every state, worshiping God 24-7. And it, there was nameless and faceless. It wasn't about a person. It was about coming before God together as the church from all different backgrounds. And then throughout that time, they had things from the main stage and so on. And, and uh, Bishop Harry Jackson and Alveda King and others and myself were a part of a, a, a reconciliation moment for three hours on that Saturday. And then Lou had what was called the call rise up on that Monday. Now, interesting about the call rise up because it was really about trying to empower a new movement of Deborah's and Esther's and women calling men to be like Mordecai's and to cause, help women to come into their destiny because for them to come into their destiny, we will see a narrative change in this nation. And so I began to process that when I came back, I was sharing this and I thought about Something that day we prayed, and they asked me to come and help pray. And I sent some text messages to to Lou and to Cindy Jacobs that day on the platform about the most powerful sermon ever preached was without words and was through a woman. Some theologians may say that it was that who it was, they think who it was, but it never mentions it in Matthew who she was the woman with the alabaster box. She never said a word. And yet Jesus said of that message, everywhere this message is ever preached, it shall be a memorial to her, a lasting legacy. So she never said a word, but it was her action, her act of worship and sacrifice that has become the greatest message 
besides the greatest message ever told, but came in, in without words. We've heard the story of St. Francis of Assisi being uh, attributed for saying that preach the gospel at all times if you must use words. What happened in this narrative of these crises we've been under, Puerto Rico, Mexico, the Gulf, Florida, all that's going on, the church, without having to say a word, is sending a new message and, and, and preaching the gospel in ways we have never preached. But we can't miss this moment. This is our window of opportunity. And let's not lose that moment. And so I really felt like it was important for me to go back and revisit some things God had been speaking to me. And I began to think about Isaiah 37. Because in 2001, prior to 9-11, the largest gathering of women was going to be hosted at the Astrodome at that time in Houston, Texas. It was called the Global Celebration of Women. Anne Graham Lotz and every major, uh, uh, Women's Aglow, every major women's movement was involved. They were coming from all over the world to bring to light the atrocities against women and the answer being through Jesus Christ and the church. They were expecting 60 to 70,000 women from around the world in the Astrodome a week after 9-11. Now, they, of course, they didn't know 9-11 was going to happen. And so when it happened, because of that, Less than 30,000 could even make it to Houston. And they had asked me as a father in the city uh, to come and share that day on one of the days. Actually, I shared twice, but on the first day is kind of starting it. And I looked around this empty Astrodome where expected 60, 70,000, now less than 30, and sensing the pain and the frustration of, of a nation as well as what was happening around the world and the unknowns. And I said, we're about to enter into a difficult pregnancy. And I remember what Hezekiah said in Isaiah 37. And he said, this is a day of trouble and distress because the children are ready to come forth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. And my paraphrase is this, that there's a generation of destiny, a generation ready to come into its prophetic destiny, a prophetic generation to be prepared the way for revival and the coming of the Lord, but they need strength to come forth into that destiny, to be born. Now, guys, don't take this person, but I mean, I've heard the story, and of course, it never happened to me, but maybe it's happened to you, that when, you, uh, when your wife was pregnant and you were holding her hand, and in the middle of labor, she gets so angry and looks at you and says, you did this to me. But the reality is, as a man, it doesn't, shouldn't take it personal, but is there to be a strength giver so that the life giver that God intended the woman to be could bring forth a birthing a child, a healthy child into this world. Well, I believe there is a spiritual corporate context that men must be secure in who they are in the Lord and not intimidated by the giftings and strengths of women. But we should, we should cherish those gifts and strength because when they are the life givers, we are the beneficiaries. And then together we will birth a generation, a prophetic generation, that will come before us now to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Without strength to deliver and life comes forth, we will continue to have this troubled pregnancy. So then on behalf of men, I repented to the, those 30,000 ladies and, and, uh, and I kind of put it in the back burner. And I only say this now because it's been many years now, but at that time, I, my, my monthly salary, I could take more, but my monthly salary was only $2,000 a month, even though we 
have an international ministry. I just felt like I was a single man at the time. I just wanted to just put it back in the ministry and live by faith. And, and of course, we still live by faith, but that was what I was allowed on paper to take. I felt that I couldn't just say, I want to give strength to deliver. I need to put my money where my mouth was. So I said, I know that the budget for this must be astronomical. And now that you have less than half of what you expected here, I can only imagine what it's going to be to pay off the indebtedness of this gathering. I said, I know it's not going to pay it off, but I'm going to do my sacrifice. I said, for the next nine months of pregnancy, for the next nine months, I want to give you half my salary. And as hard as it was, God allowed me to fulfill that obligation. And little did I realize where we would be all these years later. I felt at Awaken the Dawn and then at the Rise Up, I felt like there was something that took place. We are in a troubled pregnancy. It's been a while. We've seen this trouble and distress. We see this corporate attack on the name of the Lord and the church. And we need strength to bring this generation into its destiny. And the world keeps saying all these things about millennials and all these negative things. The reality is God sees them as a prophetic generation ready coming into their destiny. But they need strength and guidance and wisdom to come into that destiny. So rather than complain about them, shouldn't we just come alongside and help them along the way? Because if they are coming into their destiny, we become the beneficiaries. Acts 2 and Joel 2 says it this way, that my dreams, I was telling Paul earlier, uh, 33 years ago, we did the first Christian men's uh, event in Houston, Texas, Alphine's Pavilion, April the 7th, 1984, the largest gathering of men peacetime from 13 years old and older. And the most incredible outpouring of God came. Yeah. And we were the young guys then. We were the young guys. Well, we're still young, aren't we? <laughs> Technically? At heart. Yeah. at heart, yeah, okay. So, but now we have an opportunity to see another generation come into its place. Yeah. Well, I was with Jason Hershey and David Bradshaw and uh, Brian Allered with Billy Graham and, uh, and others. That we were talking, and I was thanking them, and I said, you know, I remember when Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole or people like Leonard Ravenhill or people like David Wilkerson looking at me as a young guy and seeing something in all my flaws and all my human frailty saw something of an authentic passion for God. And I remember one time being at Leonard Ravenhill's house up in East Texas and and he looked at me, and I was, I mean, when I drove up to his house, there was two lions in his driveway. I drove up to his house, and, and, I get, and before I get out of the car, I go, God, if there be anything in me right now, don't let him see it. Forgive me, Lord, please. You know, when you get ready to see the prophet, you know, and, and I tremble walking in to thank God, his wife, uh, Martha, she opened the door. He goes, oh, Brother Doug, would you like some tea or some coffee? I'm thinking, yes, ma'am. And so I'm sitting down, and I'm trembling. Brother Ravenel sits down in that big chair, and he used to put that long, bony finger in my face, and say things to me, but I want it to hurt so good. I want the truth, but season it with grace and love. And he would speak, and Dr. Cole would correct me and speak, because, but I knew he loved me. He was nudging me into the place of my destiny. But I remember being there, and, and he would say, Brother Doug, I've been praying for your generation. He was in his 80s at the time. I've been praying for your generation, Leonard Ravenel said, that there, there would be a new generation of revivalists that would emerge. And I found myself speaking to some of these other leaders in the last couple of weeks and realizing I'm the guy now who turned 41 for the 20th time. And I'm looking and I'm saying, I've been praying now in my generation, and my generation has been praying for this prophetic generation to come into its destiny. And I have hope in my heart. My heart is warmed to see that God is raising up 
a no-compromise generation who's going deep in the Lord and higher in expectation in God. I believe there's something on this generation that we can't listen to what the world says. They can't create the narrative. To see, those who tell the story and give the testimony define the narrative and write the history. What history will we leave? We don't want it to be all the news, CNN, Fox, all the other media. We want it to be the news of heaven in and through God's people and a generation that maybe had a troubled pregnancy coming into its destiny. But it takes all of us together. It takes men who are secure in their identity in Christ, who are not intimidated by the gifts and strengths of women, but cherish them, come alongside them and give them strength so that the life givers can bring forth together with us, to bring forth a generation that will rise up for a time such as this. How many are believing for that? Now, I'm just speaking. I mean, I I didn't even open the Bible yet, but I'm giving you Scripture here. December of this last year, and God has a way of speaking to us before things happen. And December of this last year, I was asked to go speak for a spiritual son who pastors uh, in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I originally met him when he was in Teen Challenge in Singapore, who they all had to come hear me speak in 1993 in Malaysia, and so he clung to me ever since. He's he's just imbibed the the ministry since then. But for the last few years, he's been pastoring as a senior pastor in Vancouver, Canada. He's of Indian descent, came out of a Hindu background, had 170 hooks put in his body of lemons, trying to find nirvana at one time, but got radically saved, and, and he's a great pastor now. So he asked me to come and renew the vows for he and his wife and preach all weekend for all their, their multiple services at their church. So I wanted to take Lisa, my wife, and my daughter Ashley with me, and so it was cheaper to fly to Seattle, get a rental car, and drive to Vancouver, Canada, than to fly to Vancouver straight from Houston. So we did that, made it a family time of it, got to Seattle, we're driving up to Vancouver, it's really quiet, and all of a sudden I hear, Doug. I looked at my wife and said, what did you say? She goes, I didn't say anything. I looked in the rearview mirror, Ashley's got her head set on. She didn't say anything. I'm thinking, man, I'm losing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I get there. I preach multiple services that week. And that Sunday after church, we decided we were going to f- drive back after lunch with the pastors back to Seattle because there was a snow blizzard coming. And our flight was leaving Seattle Monday afternoon. So Sunday afternoon, we have lunch. We get to the, to the restaurant. It's an Indian restaurant. And all of a sudden, it's just empty because it's already like 3 o'clock in the afternoon because we just did many services. And all of a sudden, we're standing there waiting to get our table, quiet, just like this. And I hear, Doug, thinking, what is going on? Nobody looked at, I mean, nobody said anything. So I'm thinking, man, I really got to pray. What's going on here? We drive back to Seattle. Snow blizzard happens. We're in the Hilton right across from the airport at SeaTac. It's snow blizzards all night long. The next morning, all the planes are shut down. So my wife and daughter go downstairs to have breakfast. It's, It's quiet. I open the back uh, uh, balcony, and I'm looking out. It's pristine, beautiful white snow, totally quiet. I shut the door. I sit down at the computer, put my Bible out. And since Lisa and Ashley went downstairs, I wanted to have my Devo time. It's really quiet. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting here, and I feel a presence next to me that my hair, you know, you get those Holy Ghost goosebumps, whatever you want to call them. I mean, I was feeling like there's something going on. But it wasn't a fearful thing. It was like I felt the presence of God. And then it got really quiet, and I thought if I turned right now, I'd see an angel going, fear not, for the Lord is with you, or something. (laughs) And if it was that intense, 
I'm sitting there, and as loud as it can be, Pastor, Doug, there was no question at this point. God was trying to get my attention. I looked around, and then again, I knew if I turned, there would be an angel with the wings going like this or something. But I turned, and I just said, and I remembered Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, and I said, yes, Lord. I fully expected God to give me a download. Nothing. Nothing. So I called a friend of mine who's the vice president at CBN. I called Cindy Jacobs. I called uh, friends John Gilman, uh, who works in India. I called other intercessors. And we all concluded that God could not say more than just my name. Because God already knows that if He were to speak audibly to us and give us... We're going to obey, aren't we? But there are times where He just wants you to know, I've called you by your name. I've got whatever is about to happen, I've got it. Whatever you've been through, wherever you're going, I'm here with you. So then He takes me to Isaiah 43, and watch this. But now, thus says the Lord. Who's speaking there? God, right? But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, or put your name there. And He who has formed you, O Israel, put your name there. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. Now watch this. I have called you by your name. Now whenever I've received a word from the Lord in all these last 37 years of ministry, I don't receive it just for myself. I believe there's a reason because I believe in the gleaning principle. When Ruth was gleaning from the fields of Boaz, though the gleaning, uh, all the, though the, the harvest belonged to him, there was a, a custom of glean that everybody had a right to glean off the leftovers. Whenever I believe I'm getting a word from God, I believe it's for a larger context. It's not just to be kept for me. Or if I've been in a meeting and I hear a good word for somebody, or somebody gets a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy, and I'm going, well, that fits for me, I can take it because it's the gleaning principle. Because God's word is good for all of us. So I believe what God was trying to say to us, the church, is I have you covered, and I've got, I know you, and I called you by your name. If He knew you before you were in your mother's womb, He knows how many hairs you have or don't have. He knows, he knows everything about us. He's formed us beautifully and wonderfully. That means He's called you specifically, not by someone else's name, but God is calling you. And it may not be audible, but God is still calling you by name nonetheless because the Bible says that He now calls you Hephzibah, my delight is in her. And He also says, your land shall be Beulah because you're now married to God. And God says, I will give you a new yeah. name that I myself yes. have yes. given you. Yes. So whatever your name is, God gave you that name, and God is calling you by your name. But with all the noise pollution going on around us, we need to hear only one voice. In 2012, I was asked by Ann Jimenez to come and help up in Philadelphia to do America for Jesus. And, uh, but I had to travel there a lot to go meet with pastors. I have a personal conviction, uh, because in the, in the old wineskins, and not to say it's wrong, but in a new season, I believe it's different that when a ministry comes in and says, I w- we want to partner with your city, what that usually means is we want you, here's our template, would you help facilitate what we want in your city? And then they take your donors and your people, and everybody gets tired, and they go back to business as usual, and you deplete a community rather than invest in the community. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, because if it's evangelism, transforming things, whatever it is, it's fine, but I believe we're in a new season. 
So when I go, I want to be, if I'm representing someone, I want to go and begin to nurture the relationships, identify the heroes and champions that are already there, and say, how can we come serve you so when we do leave, that we don't deplete you, but we've empowered you. So as I was going back and forth, one day I met with a Wall Street exec, a former Wall Street executive, and uh, he said, you know, growing up, I didn't have a good relationship with my parents. So when I had children, I want to make sure I was there for them for every one of their events. So when I got off of work in New York, I went straight back to Philadelphia for the weekends to be at, at different events for my, my children. Well, one day my son Brandon uh, was about to have all these university scouts were coming to see him in his senior year in high school because he was a great crew member. And they were coming, there were thousands coming to that regatta, thousands, and all these university scouts. And so my friend says, my, I told my son Brandon, I said, Brandon, um, I get crazy when I come to watch you because I just believe in you. I support, I'm so proud of you, son, but I know it might embarrass you. And I know you have university scouts out there and people cheering, and I hope I don't embarrass you. And Brandon said, Dad, you don't get it, do you? There might be thousands of voices out there, but I don't hear any of those voices. I only hear the voice of my dad encouraging me that I can do it. And when he said that, it resonated with me that in the midst of a world of noise pollution and pressure and junk and media, what we need to do is listen to only one voice. And that's the voice of the Father who's calling you by your name. Fear not, for I have called you by your name. By your name. You think of Dorcas. You think of Lydia. You think of Cornelius. All of them had memorials before heaven because God raised up a memorial to them because they had a heart that was humble, a heart of serving, a heart of worship, a heart of prayer. And even Cornelius, who wasn't even a born-again believer, as we would understand, God memorialized his heart because he said, he said, I've heard you. He sent Peter to him because he heard him praying with earnestness and reverential desire for God, that he had a heart to serve even those he didn't understand. There was something of benevolence and generosity and an authentic heart of prayer and desire for God that God saw that innocence and he, he appeared to him with an angel's visitation yeah. and then had, had uh, Peter come visit him. How many of us in Dorcas, when here's a single woman who, who is a business lady who then started a whole movement since then of, of female champions and professionals and, and ministry and, and, and ministering to others. And we saw this great legacy that a single woman, instead of saying, oh, I'm so single, I, I'll never be complete till I have a holy hunk for a husband. I remember when I was young, people would always come and say, say Doug, would you pray that, that God would give me a righteous fox? And, and then I, ladies, would you pray I would have a holy hunk? And, and I'd start being at church and people raising their hands. But they weren't raising their hands at these singles gatherings because they were, they were going, ooh, Lord, check out that righteous fox over there. <laughs> or, oh, Lord, look at that holy hunk. And then, then what happens is then we begin to go through life and realize that if it's not based on covenant commitment... We live in a world that people make choices based on feelings rather than covenant commitments. God calls us to be a covenant people. And how can we keep covenant with one another in marriages, relationships, friendships, body of Christ, which is supposed to be the mystery of the kingdom, which is the church, which is to reflect the family of Christ to the world? If we can't keep covenant with God, how are we going to keep covenant with one another? 
And the only way we can keep covenant with one another is if we have a committed covenant with God. It says, God, it's not about me. It's about representing you. It's about loving you. Or if we look at, even look at uh, Lydia. And Lydia, because out of prayer and out of, of a place of worship, God used her and memorialized her actions as well. God is raising up a generation where men are secure in who they are in Christ to give strength to women to come into the fullness of what God intends for them so they can become the life givers and together we can see a generation emerge that are not what the world says, but what God has already called them to be. A prophetic generation preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. So God is saying, I have called you by your name. As Dr. Cole used to say, I'm not finished, I'm just going to quit. I just got warmed up, but I'm going to so quit. Good though, man. Because I think the point is being made. It is. Yeah. That's right. That if we're going to move forward, men, if you're going to be all you can be, then you need to understand who you are in Christ. Yeah. And recognize that it's not about our perfection, but we're under a place of pressure so we can go to our knees and become the men God wants us to be. And so that we can rise up and not be insecure, but be secure in our identity in Christ so we can come alongside women and help them to come out of their pain, out of their place of suppression, out of their place of, of, of the oppression over the years, and let them come into the fullness of who God's called them to be. So as you become their strength giver and they become their life givers, together we will see a generation come forth that God has designed them to be. Yes, it's a day of trouble. Yes, it's a day of distress and contempt. It's Hezekiah's day. But the difference is we have a revelation they didn't have then. We have a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection that changes and transforms each and every one of us. And we can't change our past, but the decisions we make today will determine our future. You have been through, we have been through in Houston, you've been through here so much in the natural shaking of things and the, and the winds and the storms. In fact, when I read the later throughout that scripture in Isaiah 43, it spoke to me personally about the land of my birth, which is Japan. And because I actually went to Brazil and then to Japan just days before the, the, the Hurricane Harvey, and then I landed here and went right into all that. But as I began to look at all of Isaiah 43 that I won't go into now, it was really preparing me because it said you'll, you'll re, be reunited with the, the people of the East, your family of the East, with the West. And it says all the thunderings and the storms and the floods, all that, all the noise, God's voice is louder than all of that. We need to hear God's voice now more than ever. This is our moment. This is the time for the change of the narrative because we have a story to tell. And that story isn't always with our words, but it's with our actions. That we will intentionally cross our racial barriers, denominational barriers, our political barriers. Those are important things. We need to be engaged in the culture. But that cannot be the thing that, that divides us. And it can't be the thing that determines who we are. We're determined who we are because God Himself has called you by your name. Yes, that's right. And He Himself... That's why Colossians 1.12 says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us or qualified you to receive the inheritance of, of the children of the light because of the Son of His love. We've all been given a new name. We have an inheritance, and we don't have to take by force what God's already given to us. If God be, is for you, who can be against you? So why do we spend so much time, time trying to get other people to accept us if we just learn to be accepted by the Lord? God will make a way that we will be accepted with man. 
Look at somebody next to you and say, it's time to have the baby. Out of the most human impossibility, Hannah, in human impossibility, God was able to change what was humanly impossible and to bring forth out of her womb a new generation of righteous judge and prophet. I believe this generation God's about to bring forth is not an individual prophet or judge, but a multi-generational release of a generation of righteous judges and prophetic voices that will transform this nation and the nations. This is our moment. Let's walk into it.